0: I've asked Brian Stewart, one of our elders, to come and lead us in a Christmas prayer. And that's what he's going to do. Let's pray together.
1: Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have taught us in your word. In fact, you have taught us in the Christmas story itself that you bring great joy. Lord, we have that great joy in you. We have that great joy in the Holy Spirit living within us. And we have that great joy in the gospel that you have allowed us and given us the privilege of sharing to a world that is lost. Father, as we come together this holiday season, as families, Lord, with uh, different opinions and beliefs, I pray that we will not be confrontational. Lord, that we will be able to share great joy and express great joy to those who don't agree with us and maybe don't even believe in you my prayer is that our actions and our words will glorify you, will help those who are lost to see a, a different side of Christianity that they, that they fear, and that they will accept and see the love that we have for them, and the love that we have for you, and it will be a difference maker. Lord, we are here for one reason, that is to, to worship you, to glorify you, And to praise you for all that you have done for us. Remind us this holiday season that Easter would never have happened without Christmas. Let us worship in that. In Jesus' name,
0: amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Brian. We were talking just a few minutes ago about the Christmas Eve services. They are really my favorite Christmas tradition. For as long as I can remember, candlelight Christmas Eve services have been my favorite, and they still are. Now, one of the things that I also enjoy is talking to other people about their Christmas traditions. At our SALT group, for years, we have kicked around all of the things that people love this time of year. And it's kind of fun to hear the different traditions, the different practices that families have. I don't stop just with the salt group. I'll ask different people at different times about their favorite Christmas traditions because I just enjoy it so much. In fact, J.C. Hooten was at our house yesterday and I was asking her about the Hooten family Christmas traditions and about her favorites, and she was filling in some of those blanks. It's just fun to hear those different things. Well, this past week, I was looking for new creative Christmas traditions, and I found myself turning to the Parent Survival Website. That's exactly what it's called, Parent Survival Website. And on there, they have 25 creative Christmas traditions that parents and grandparents really should pay attention to. I want to show you these 25. This is just for fun, so just enjoy this, but maybe you'll grab hold of something you'd like to try as well. Here you go. Number one, wrap 25 books Kids can open one book each night leading up to Christmas. My daughter would have loved that as a kid. My sons would have thought they had done something wrong. (laughs) Number two, do a video interview of family members every Christmas Eve. Number three, instead of candy in the advent calendar, write notes each day about what you love most about each child. Number four, hide the last presents on Christmas Day And make clues as to where your kids can find them. Now, that sounds kind of fun. Number five, turn your elf on a shelf into a kindness elf that helps around the house and notices when your kids do considerate things. Those are all pretty good. Let's keep going. Number six, make hot chocolate and cookies and drive around looking at Christmas lights on Christmas Eve. Number seven, give matching Christmas pajamas for the whole family on Christmas Eve. And spend the entire day in them. It's not a bad thing. Number eight, make reindeer food out of dried oats and glitter and have the kids sprinkle it in the backyard on Christmas Eve. Number nine, take flour and make Santa footprints on Christmas Eve. And the day after that, good luck with the flour. Number 10, watch Polar Express and drink hot chocolate every Christmas Eve. Number 11, take your kids shopping for a toy to donate during the Christmas season. Number 12, make a countdown to Christmas paper chain. Take a ring off the chain each day. Number 13, make a hot chocolate bar with whipped cream and marshmallows. Number 14, write a yearly letter to your kids and put it in a clear plastic fillable ornament ball. I really like that one. Number 15, take your kids shopping to buy presents for each other and their father. Number 16, <laughs> have a special dessert or dish you only make on Christmas. 17, have a camp out one night under the Christmas tree. Number 18, booby-trap the children's bedroom doors by creating a web of green and red streamers the kids have to break through on Christmas morning. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Number 19, take a picture each year in front of the tree in the same poses. Keep an ongoing collection for a photo series that shows them growing up and you losing hair. Number 20, (laughs) photocopy your children's letters to Santa each year and make a book out of them when they are older. 21, make a red and green paper gratitude chain. Each night leading up to Christmas, each person writes what they are grateful for and adds it to the chain. Twenty-two. Have your children make gift coupons for people in the family. Here's an example. This coupon is good for one complimentary room cleaning. (laughs) Again, kids are going to wonder what they did wrong. Twenty-three. Leave stockings at the foot of your children's bed to keep them entertained as you catch a few more winks Christmas morning. We can only dream. Twenty-four. Give your kids a Christmas bath with a few drops of green food dye or Crayola color bath drops, and then put candy canes and some holiday decorations all around the tub. Number 25, hide Christmas chocolate coins in the Christmas dinner. I'm not positive about that one at all because I know I don't want my turkey tasting like chocolate, so I'm, that one bothers me a little bit. Well, I had a a direction that I wanted to go after sharing those 25 with you. But as sure as I am standing here, this is what happened. At 1.40 this morning, I popped awake, I mean wide awake, with this idea in my mind. What would Mary have written if she was in charge of that website about Christmas traditions? Since she was there at the very first Christmas What would she have put down for traditions that other people might want to follow? That's not how you want to wake up at 1.40 in the morning. So I grabbed hold of my Bible and I grabbed hold of my phone. My phone was the mode on which I was going to write things down. And my Bible I was just going to use to search through and see what Mary might have come up with for Christmas traditions. Interestingly enough, I landed on 25. I sent these to Beth about 5, 5.30 this morning, and Beth and Terry made it happen so that you can see them for yourself. This is what happens in my house in the middle of the night. Number one, 25 suggested Christmas traditions from Mary. Number one, write new songs and sing them in church. Now, if you have read the gospel accounts of the Christmas story, these things should resonate with you. Number two, invite strange travelers over for dinner and tell stories about Jesus. Number three, stargaze. It's not going to get any better than that, so just catch up. Number four, have a sheep shearing party. Number five, play the quiet game with all male cousins. (laughs) Number six, plan a wedding. Number seven, go home for the holidays. Number eight, sleep in a barn on Christmas Eve. Number nine, tear fabric into strips so that number 10, you can have a baby swaddling contest. No idea what that would look like. Number 11, (laughs) play hide-and-seek with government officials. (laughs) Number 12, have the youngest person in the family sleep in a manger for at least one night. 13, make a birthday cake for your children. 14, take a second honeymoon to distant lands. 15, visit the temple and look for really curious individuals to meet. Number 16, bring glad tidings to your neighbors along with great joy. 17, go for a donkey ride. 18. Look up the meaning of everyone's name. 19. Invite a young boy over to play his drum. Really? That's that's the only one that you're not going to find in the, the biblical account. I just put that in to see if you were awake. Apparently, you're not. Number 20. Go to hotels and ask for the worst room available. 21. Have everyone bring their favorite animal to dinner. 22. See how far back you can remember your genealogy. 23. Decorate your house with pictures of all the angels you've met. 24, have your husband share his dreams in vivid detail. And number 25, make it a birthday party for Jesus. Now that last one is the most intriguing one to me. Make it a birthday party for Jesus. And there are a lot of people that do. Ray was telling me that they sing happy birthday to Jesus before they open any gifts every year. That's a pretty cool thing. But for Mary to make it a birthday party for Jesus, it might not have captured her attention right at the beginning. Because you see, in Jewish tradition, if you were to go back and search out birthdays, you would find very little, but at the exact same time, a lot about how the Jews approach birthdays. The Torah, the Old Testament, says nothing about birthdays. So Josephus, the greatest Jewish historian we have, the one who gives us insight into what the culture might have been like while Jesus was alive, or even into the Old Testament, the things that were happening, Josephus would say this, the Torah says nothing about birthdays, therefore it does not prohibit them. Meaning that some Jews celebrate birthdays and some don't. It's really that simple. There's all kinds of freedom within the Jewish culture. Now, some people would tell you that there are so many celebrations that the Jews observe that they don't need to add another one by celebrating birthdays. So most do absolutely nothing. Though the Hasidic Jews choose a different path, they celebrate their birthdays every year by opening their Bibles to the Psalms and reading, making sure that they let their thoughts come to rest on the Psalm that corresponds with their age. And then after they've done that, they reflect on all the things that God has done for them in the past year. And then they culminate that day by giving money to some charity or to those in need. That's how the Hasidic Jews do it. But for the most part, the Jewish people don't spend much time observing birthdays. They choose instead other dates associated with birthdays. Like this, instead of paying attention to the first birthday... They wait until the date that a child is weaned. And then there's a massive celebration that surrounds that. And they take that out of some different places in Scripture. If you have your Bible with me, open to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 21, verse 8. This happens after Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah, was born. Genesis 21 verse 8, and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. As a result of that one verse, there is a huge celebration that surrounds that date for Jewish children, particularly the boys. Now there are other places in scripture where you find the same practice. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 23. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. So here's another celebration that is attached to the weaning of a child from his mother. The Jews put great significance on that moment, a lot more significance than they did on just the birthday. However, for Jewish boys, the third birthday is extremely important. That tends to be the first time they get a haircut. So on their third birthday, their hair is cut for the first time. And there's a celebration that surrounds that. But it'll be another 10 years before there's a big celebration for that boy. And that will happen at his bar mitzvah at 13 years old. For young Jewish girls, it's called a bat mitzvah. And that takes place at 12 years old. So there's all this freedom within Jewish society to choose what to do with birthdays. And the majority of them do nothing. Mary probably wouldn't have celebrated birthdays either. They were Jewish. It would be 300 plus years after the time of Christ before anyone would celebrate his birthday on December 25th. It was in the year 336 that that happened for the very first time. And it happened under the advice, under the edict, really, of Constantine, the first Christian Roman emperor, He wanted to celebrate the birth of Christ, and so he declared December 25th the day to do that. Several years after that, Pope Julius I would declare December 25th the birthday of Jesus. But really, nobody knows. Nobody knows. We have no idea when he was born. The Bible does not tell us. Now, there's a lot of speculation So people have determined that it could have happened in December, some people say it happened in January, and all of that speculation can carry all the way out to the month of April. But if you took all of those speculations, threw them in a pot, stirred them together, at the end of all of that, you would still only have speculation. That's all it would be. And that speculation would rise to the top, and we still would not know when Jesus was actually born. So December 25th is a tradition. It's the day that we have said we will celebrate his birth. But if you were growing up in Joseph and Mary's home, and you had determined, or they had determined, that there would be birthday parties, Jesus's would have been particularly difficult. And the reason for that is a little bit heartbreaking as you make your way through the New Testament. You see, Jesus was not an only child. No matter what tradition teaches and no matter what we have had ingrained within us, he was not an only child. And the Bible teaches that. The Bible shows us that. He had brothers and he had sisters. And here's the truth of what the Bible says about his brothers and his sisters. They didn't believe in him. Because they didn't believe in him, there was a lot of angst within the family. And that was heartbreaking at times. I don't want you to take my word for all of that. I want you to see it for yourself. And as you get into a study like this, the first thing that you're going to determine is that among all of the siblings, Jesus had a special place, a special role within the family. And that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone because he was the half-brother to all of his brothers and sisters. Joseph was his earthly father. His biological father is the Holy Spirit. Now again, I don't want you to believe me. I want us to go into the Christmas story so you see it for yourself. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, there's the truth right out of the Bible. Jesus came from Mary and the Holy Spirit. He was God with us. That's the very meaning of the name Emmanuel. So when Jesus was born, God came down, and he lived with us. Now, he lives with us, but he lived in Joseph and Mary's house. He lived with his half-brothers and his half-sisters. And strangely enough, oddly enough, the Bible would show us that they couldn't accept him for who he was. Can you imagine that? You have God in your bedroom. You have God sitting around your table every night. You have God in your living room. You have God sitting in the recliner. Ben's watching Netflix with you. You have God there all the time. And they could not accept him for who he was. Now again, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see what the Bible says. So let's go to the Gospel of Mark together. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. What we're about to read contains a lot of very deep, personal teaching. And it comes directly from Jesus. Verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. Now you just heard the actual names of Jesus' four brothers. His sisters are never named in the Bible. We never get those, but we do have the names of his four brothers. And listen to verse 4 again. This is what Jesus says. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Those are the people that are questioning him. But then he goes on. And among his relatives. That's his extended family. He is without honor with his extended family. But then catch this. And in his own household. Those four brothers, his sisters, whoever they happened to be, did not believe in him. Not at all. And there are places that drive that point home for us. Like this in Mark chapter 3, if you just want to turn back a few chapters. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons." He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind now the newest translations of the bible might read like this he is out of his ever loving mind that's exactly what his four brothers and his unnamed sisters were thinking at this point society would teach us tradition would teach us that joseph was gone we don't know what happened to him Most people believe that he had died. We don't know how Joseph died. We just know that he was not in the picture at this point. So his brothers are kind of running the house because Jesus has left. He is out gathering to himself followers. He is building a following. And so much so that he has 12 men that he wants to call his apostles. A rabbi would have followers and he would have dedicated followers. Sometimes the rabbi might refer to them as disciples or he might refer to them as apostles. These are the apostles of Jesus. And his brothers come to him and say, what are you doing? This is embarrassing. Mom's been through enough. Stop this. What is going through your head? And they tried to collect him and take him home, and Jesus isn't going to have any part of it. But underneath all of that is this very interesting detail. Did you catch it? In the list of 12 names, not one of his brothers was mentioned. They are not counted among the apostles. The people that knew him the best. The people that had the longest history with him. The people that grew up sharing a home with him. The people that did chores with him every day. They were not in that list, so much so that they thought he was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. They had been living with God himself all these years, and they could not see him for who he was. And it gets worse. Not only did they think he was crazy, they started mocking him. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, his brothers, said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now they're mocking him. If you're really a worker of miracles, if you're really the Messiah, if you are really the Savior, if you're the one that you say you are, what are you doing up here in Galilee? What are you doing around Nazareth and Capernaum? If you're really who you say you are, get to Jerusalem. The feast is there. Go declare yourself publicly. Get down there because if you don't, all you're doing is hiding these things that you are supposedly saying are fact about you. And all of that was dripping with sarcasm. All of that was dripping with mockery. They didn't believe him at all even though they had seen Him for who He was. Even though Emmanuel had been lived out in front of them, they couldn't see Him. They couldn't accept Him. They couldn't love Him. They couldn't trust Him. There are a lot of people today, a lot of people in this room, that know exactly what Jesus was going through. Because your faith is mocked by those that should know you best. Your belief in Christ is not accepted by family members, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, parents for some of you, children for some of you. You know the exact pain Jesus was going through. You've lived it. In your own skin, you've experienced it. And you know that those wounds can run very, very deep. And if they're left unchecked, they can become wounds that separate and divide. And they do. For some reason, we have faith today that becomes an offense to other people. And at this particular time of year, that offense grows in magnitude. And people start saying that Christmas is offensive and it doesn't just happen in a political realm or in a society realm. It happens in families. Christmas is offensive. And that shouldn't be surprising because we learn things like this in the book of 1 Corinthians, verse 18, chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul writes those words and those of us that have experienced this type of hurt know exactly what that's like. My family has non-believers in it. Tina's family has non-believers in it. And in both of our situations, we know what it is like to come to Christmas and have people that mock our faith. And so do you. A lot of you have experienced it. And it turns the holidays into this stressful time. We come into Christmas, which should be this celebration and joyful event. And instead it becomes this idea that we have to get together with people that we really don't want to be with because we know the conversation is going to end in a bad place. We know that somehow we're going to end up fighting again and again and again. And it's going to be more than anybody wants to bear. And so people, rather than anticipating with excitement what it means to come into the Christmas season, dread it. They dread it with anxiety and stress. They dread it with fear. They dread it with brokenness within their families. My friends, if that is your story, I want you to know that you are not alone because it is also Jesus' story. And I saw it illustrated this last week as I was putting the message together in all places on Facebook. There was a young man on there who had some needs in his family. One of his family members was very sick in the hospital, and he put out on Facebook a few of the details, and he asked all of his, his social media friends to pray for this person that is very close to him. The majority of people responded by saying, will do, we're on it, praying now, hope things get better. Some of them just put the emoji of praying hands in the comments, letting him know that his request was being covered in prayer. And he responded to most of those comments, and then one person wrote, you know, no prayers are coming from me, but I'll send good thoughts their way. My friend on Facebook writes back, and I'm so proud of him. I'd rather have prayers. That's pretty good. I'd rather have prayers. Keep your good thoughts. I'm asking you to pray, and I'm asking you to lift up my loved one. I'd rather have prayers. Jesus was dividing. Jesus was an offense within the the social media friendship realm. And I don't know the connection between the two of them. All I know is that there was separation and there was division over the very idea of just praying. Why that person couldn't have just stayed quiet, I have no idea. But they had to send a shot across the bow of their friend. How sad is that? And then right as I was putting that illustration together within the message, another one popped up, and this one is even worse. It came from a young lady who was writing something that she would post publicly that should have been sent in a private message, or even better, should have been a conversation had face-to-face. Here's the, the high points of what she posted on her wall. She said, I have family members, and they know who they are, that believe in God. And every year at Christmas, they try to shove him down my throat. And I don't want that this year. And then she switched into a very personal attack. That is your belief. And I know that you really believe it with all of your heart, but I do not. And I don't want to hear about it this year. And she goes on talking about why she doesn't want to hear about it. She goes on laying out all of the details. In essence, saying, keep it to yourself. When we gather together at Christmas time, don't bring it up again. So there's the hurt. It's already visible. There's the division. It's growing before they even get together. And I don't know how many miles they have to cover in order to be with one another, but I know there's a lot of hurt in those miles now. And there's hurt on both sides. Through the years, I have come to the conclusion that when we come to these types of debates, they do not have to be heated. We don't have to go to Christmas dinners with family members, and try to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have to go there with our weapons already drawn, ready for the battle. We just have to go there and live what we believe. And it can make all the difference in the world. Because you see, and I mean this with all of my heart, God doesn't need you to defend the gospel. He just needs you to live the gospel. And when we live the gospel, when we're able to lay down our weapons, when we're able to step back from the fight and just let God be God, some pretty cool things can happen. It really can. Just by saying, hey, this is who I am. God lives with me. I have experienced Emmanuel, God with me. And all I can do is tell you my story and I'll let God do the rest. And God does. And when we can embrace that type of an attitude, we can disarm the battles. That's what Jesus did. I like the way Titus captures that idea. This is found in Titus chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Really, we could boil Titus's... Titus is teaching down this way. Just live what you believe and God will do the rest and nobody will bring accusation against you because you're living out the love of Jesus Christ and demonstrating Emmanuel that way. God with us. And it can change the entire course of the conversation. And here's how I know that. Because it worked for Jesus. Remember those brothers and sisters that didn't believe in him? Well, that all changed. Changed after the resurrection. It changed after Jesus came out of the grave. And his siblings all of a sudden began to believe. James led the way. James, really, this interesting person in the book of Acts. We find out that though he was not counted among the apostles, when the apostles scattered out of Jerusalem and went on missionary journeys and they were no longer leading the largest church in the area, the person that they entrusted it to was the brother of Jesus. His name is James. James took over. James was leading everything from the headquarters Not only was he leading, but he became an advisor, are you ready for this, to the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. They came back to him to seek wisdom. They came back to James and everybody in Jerusalem to say, hey, what do we do about this? And they were the apostles. So James found this belief in Christ that allowed him to rise in prominence because Jesus just lived who he was. That's all he did. Even when they didn't believe in him, right up to the end in the three years of his public ministry, they didn't believe in him. But Jesus remained consistent. And look what happened in James' life. That's that's stunning. But it wasn't just James. One of his other brothers, one of Jesus' other brothers, named Jude, would become a believer. And James wrote a book in the New Testament, just five chapters in it. But man, they are powerful and practical. His brother Jude would write a book in the New Testament with only one chapter that gives us insight into things that we don't find anywhere else in Scripture. My take on that has always been this. Jude can say things to us that make us go, what? Where else do we see that until we realize that he is the brother of Jesus? And in my own imagination, here's the way it worked. Jude and Jesus shared a bedroom. And so at night, Jesus would tell stories, and Jude, even though he was skeptical and struggling, did have access to God. So he asked questions, and Jesus told stories, and Jude remembered them. And he writes about some of them in just one chapter. I love this little book. Listen to what he says. In a heartfelt way, he talks about those who don't believe and yet teach. They don't teach the gospel. They teach against it. This is what Jude says. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden wreaths at your love feast, your Christmas dinners as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. Listen to this, two words, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Did you catch those two words? Did they land on you? Speaking of those that would teach against the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of its mysteries, this is what Jude, the brother of Jesus, says. They're twice dead. Twice dead. Now just let that sink in for a minute. What in the world does that mean, twice dead? It means that they have experienced physical death because of their sin, and they have experienced spiritual death. They are twice dead because they don't understand. At one point in his life, Jude was twice dead. And that all changed. That all changed. When he came to believe, when he accepted who his brother was, it all changed. And Jude was no longer twice dead. He was eternally alive. And the same thing works for us. We can go from being twice dead to eternally alive through Jesus Christ. And we can help other people get there too. But we may have to lay down some of our weapons and simply live Emmanuel, in order for that to happen, and then trust God to bring it about in his timing. And he does. I'll leave you with an illustration. I really wish this was mine because this is just good. But it's not. It comes from John Piper. I read it a while ago, and and it has stuck with me. Here's what Piper says. He says, when we come to these types of situations where we have combative family members around us, Maybe what we need to do is change our terminology. And then by changing our terminology, we can really get the message presented. And he bases that on this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You don't have to turn with me, just listen. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So, Paul is teaching that we can entrust these things to the Lord, and if we can change just a little bit of our terminology, we can help move that message along. And here's the terminology that John Piper encourages us to lose. He said, rather than fighting over the, the fact that God provided the only way to salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, that tends to light a fire in people. That tends to stir the pot and it tends to get things really going. Piper says, why don't we try this? Let's bring joy back into the Christmas message by using terms like this. God provided a way to salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Now you listen closely to that because you might think that the first statement becomes a universalist statement, that we can get to heaven, we can get to a relationship with God through any number of different means, but that's not what Piper is teaching. He's saying we can disarm the battle by bringing joy back into the discussion. Because do you remember when the angel came to Joseph? He said, I bring you glad tidings with, say it with me, great joy. And if we can bring that great joy back into the discussion to say that I was separated from God, but now he has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, for me to be with him and experience Emmanuel, we can get the message across. We don't have to fight about it. All we have to do is share the joy of Emmanuel, God with us. And that opens the door for us to talk about Jesus. That sets the table for everything that's going to happen from that point forward. And now the love feast is back where it should be. And we have a chance to reach out to those that are currently twice dead and show them eternal life.